0: For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassanet. I'll be your host, uh, as always. This week, we're going to be talking about the uh, seven churches that John describes in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This came in direct fulfillment of a commission he received from the Savior in Revelation chapter one where he was told to write what he sees to the seven churches in Asia. And so we have his letters in these chapters that describe the church and what's going on in the uh, cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, the order that I have just given you is probably the order in which John's manuscript was sent to each of these cities, and they kind of go in a clockwise fashion beginning with Ephesus which was a coastal city uh, on the Aegean Sea and it was located about 60 miles north and east of the island of Patmos. If you then went another 50 miles further to the north you ran into another coastal city by the name of Smyrna and from Smyrna you start to kind of go inland and further north until you hit Pergamos which would have been the Further, furthermost northern city among the seven that John wrote the letters to. And then you go down kind of due south, and you'll hit the uh, the remaining four cities uh, in their clockwise fashion, as I've indicated. These cities were located on kind of these principal roads that ran north and south in Asia Minor. Some scholars suggest that the reason John chose these particular seven cities For the writing of the letters was because they were on a particular postal route and and that might well be true but uh, i obviously i think there's some greater significance to these particular seven cities than the fact that they happen to be on the same postal route now i mentioned that uh, john of course wrote just one manuscript on a scroll that had to be shared among the seven cities so it's not like he wrote seven different letters and sent one letter to each of them all seven got the same content beginning with Ephesus then up to Smyrna and around in clockwise fashion to the remaining cities so this wasn't a situation where John had uh, print-on-demand functions on his computer and uh, could just order however many copies he needed and there's no uh, Kinko's copies on Patmos Island, I don't think, in 96 AD. So the alternative was you just have to write one and then everybody has to share and share alike. Kind of reminds me of when I was growing up on my grandfather's ranch in Saratoga. We all shared a common telephone line. So everybody up and down Spring Creek Road had to use the same line. And if uh, somebody was using the phone, you get on there, you hear, you're hear, you going to hear them talking and <laughs> You just have to kind of wait your turn. And uh, everybody kind of knew what everybody's business was because, uh, you know, you could just sit and listen to everybody's conversation, which sometimes my grandmother was wont to do. And I know this because sometimes we would come into the house unexpectedly and she'd be over by the phone. And uh, as soon as she saw us come in, she'd put down the receiver back on the uh, telephone. <laughs> So she'd be acting like she's trying to call somebody, but, but we knew her secret. She was in there listening to other people's telephone conversations. And so I always got a chuckle out of that about my grandmother. Um, I had a similar experience after I got home from my uh, mission in 1980, where, uh, I was working on my brother-in-law's ranch in Upton, Wyoming, and they were about 16 miles out, out of town, and so everybody out in their vicinity who were ranchers had to share the same telephone line as well. And on that occasion, it was kind of funny because uh, there was the these two lovebird teenagers that lived in adjacent ranches, and they would get on the phone. And I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, you get a couple of lovebird teenagers on the phone. They're going to talk forever. But it was (laughs) was a little bit different because, yes, they would get on the phone, and they would stay on the phone forever, but they wouldn't talk. (laughs) <laughs> and so it's crazy because you get on there and you just hear silence there was no dial tone but nobody's talking so you kinda click the phone click 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 hello hello and you're trying to get a dial tone and after a minute or so they one of them comes on and says we're on the phone we're using the phone and, uh, and so then it occurred to us, oh, it's the lovebirds, and uh, it, I guess that was just their way of hanging out in the uh, early 1980s uh, when the, no video, no, no sound, nothing. but you know, you, I guess it was the love vibe going through the uh, phone line. But uh, that's kind of the way it was, and so it was uh, back in 96 AD. Everybody just kind of had to wait their turn until uh, the single manuscript was uh, produced from John on the island and was circulated to them. So So everybody got to see what everybody else's business was uh, all about. Now I want to talk a little bit about the conditions at the time that John wrote uh, these letters to the seven churches in 96 AD. By that time all the apostles were dead except for John. Who, of course, was banished to the island of Patmos. By that point in time, uh, the apostles Peter, Andrew, and Philip had all been crucified. James and Paul had died by beheading. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Matthew by the battle axe. Thomas was run through with a lance uh, the apostle James was beaten to death Thaddeus was shot with arrows Barnabas was stoned uh, the, and Mark was uh, dragged through the uh, streets of Alexandria in Egypt until he was dead so these are, are things that are generally known through some of the writings of the Christian fathers and traditions that were handed down as to uh, how the apostles died I have not mentioned them all we don't know exactly how all of them died but uh, I think is a pretty clear assumption that uh, by 96 AD all of them with the exception of John had died and passed away uh, through martyrdom and John alone remained to uh, be aware of it uh, having been promised by the Savior that he would tarry and would not die until the time of the second coming in uh, John chapter 21 and so uh, here we are In uh, 96 AD, with John being the sole uh, apostle remaining, it fell to him then to write the Revelation after uh, receiving the visions that he received on the island of Patmos. Now, I tell you this because uh, this issue of apostolic authority and how it survived until the time of the Revelation is not a view that is shared by everyone because the, the Roman Catholic Church takes the position that after the death of Peter by crucifixion in Rome, the uh, apostolic keys that he held uh, passed on to the bishop in Rome, who was a man at that time by the name of Laius and then Linus, and then to successive bishops of Rome after that. And I want to talk about that just a little bit, because if the Roman Catholic position is correct, then one would have to assume that it should have been one of the bishops at rome that was writing and receiving the revelation rather than john now elder orson f whitney an apostle of the church uh, made this statement at the april 1928 general conference he mentioned that he had had a conversation with a man who was a member of the roman catholic church and said quote he was a great scholar He must have had a dozen languages at his tongue's end. We were frank and friendly with each other, and one day he said to me, You Mormons are all ignoramuses. You don't even know the strength of your own position. It is so strong that there is only one other position tenable in the whole Christian world, and that is the position of the Roman Catholic Church. The issue is between Mormonism and Catholicism. If you are right, we are wrong. If we are right, you are wrong. And that's all there is to it. The Protestant sects haven't got a leg to stand on. For if we are right, we cut them off long ago as apostates. And if we are wrong, they are wrong with us. For they were a part of us and came out of us. If we have the apostolic succession, they were a part of us and came out of us and from St. Peter, as we claim. There was no need of Joseph Smith and Mormonism. But if we have not the apostolic succession, then such a man as Joseph Smith was necessary, and Mormonism's position is the only consistent one. It is either the perpetuation of the gospel from ancient times or the restoration of the gospel in latter days close quote sorry for the lengthy quote but the bottom line is this man who was a Roman Catholic understood this concept that the apostolic authority succeeded from Peter down through the line of popes or if that didn't happen it had to have been restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith and he, so he kind of recognized it, it really has to be one or the other and so the issue is uh, whether That type of succession occurred, which brings us back to John's writing of the Revelation in 96 AD. So here we have Peter who died in the late 60s AD, and uh, we know that Linus was the first bishop in Rome after Peter's death, and he uh, was the bishop from approximately 67 AD until 79 AD. The second bishop after Linus was a man by the name of Cletus, and he was the bishop in Rome from 79 AD until 91 AD. Third and finally, we have uh, Clement, who was the third bishop from 91 to 100. Now, since John wrote the Revelation in 96 AD, our concern is primarily with Clement and what was going on with him at the time the revelation was received. Now the Catholic Church also recognizes that John died no later than about 96 AD. That's, that's what they say. We take another different view on that. One of those areas where we can kind of agree to disagree. And so that time was roughly 29 years after the martyrdom of Peter in 67 AD, which means From a Catholic perspective, um, Linus, Cletus, and Clement were the successors of Peter. So that by the time the revelation was written in 96 AD, Clement would have had the apostolic keys and make, therefore, John technically would be under his jurisdiction, all right? Now, Elder B.H. Roberts, an apostle of the church, had something to say about that. He said, I will not say that such a conclusion is ridiculous. I will say that such a conclusion is unthinkable and impossible, Now Clement actually had a commentary on this issue of jurisdiction himself because he wrote a letter that we find in the book of 1st Clement verse 44 and this letter uh, acknowledged an issue of apostolic authority of the uh, over the church at that time and it was written in about 96 AD And he wrote the letter in response to certain local congregations that had dismissed their local leaders that had been called by the apostles. And so he was writing to address a concern that once an apostle called a local leader of the church, you can't just sort of willy-nilly say, we don't want you anymore, and kind of get rid of him. And so what he said in 1 Clement verse 44 is, we consider, therefore that it is not just to remove from their ministry those who were appointed by them close quote and it, the them that he's referring to were those that held apostolic authority and were the ones that had called these local leaders so even clement who was the bishop in rome as of 96 a.d was saying if the Apostles do something, they have the overall jurisdiction of the church and it's not up to local congregations to decide anything different and that would include himself as the Bishop of Rome. So this issue that the Bishop of Rome would have the Apostolic Authority is problematic on several other fronts as well and and among them we have the issue of the fact that the uh, first pope to actually declare that the popes had primacy over other local churches and uh, and the local clergy was uh, pope leo i also known as leo the great in 450 a.d after he made his declaration that there was papal primacy there was a council held in the city of Chalcedon in modern Turkey. It was the fourth ecumenical council held in 451 AD and that was the first council to recognize papal primacy. Now going further, one step further, in 607 AD you had Pope Boniface III who was the Bishop of Rome who then claimed that not only does the, uh, the pope have primacy over all uh, other local clergy, but the bishop of Rome is effectively the pope and stands supreme in authority over all other church, uh, church leaders. And so this concept of uh, papal primacy and the bishop of Rome being the one who was also uh, the rightful person to be the pope evolved over centuries of time. And so when we're talking about things going on back at the time of Peter's death and succession of apostolic authority, these things were really decided and fleshed out centuries later. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, from the standpoint of claiming supremacy and succession of uh, authority back to Peter also have problems like the Great Schism that happened uh, in 1309 and then continued until 1378. This was a period of time when there's a great conflict in the church between the popes who were trying to decide who was the rightful pope, and it was the time when you had the split between the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, and uh, the the way that it was ultimately res- resolved, if it if you can say that it was resolved, in 1378 was these conflicting pope- popes uh, excommunicated each other from the church, and uh, then the the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, basically. Uh, pushed out all of those in the Greek Orthodox Church and would no longer allow them to partake of communion in the Roman Catholic Church. And that's where we end up with the the two uh, great Catholic churches, uh, being the Western Roman Church and the Greek Orthodox Church in the East. But you, you have all those kinds of issues of succession. But I bring this up because It's important to the concept of who who was the one that should have written the revelation and who should have received the revelation because according to the Roman Catholic logic if Linus then Cletus then Clement succeeded to the authority of Peter as of 96 AD then Clement should have received the revelation but the fact of the matter is He did not, and it was John, and he had the apostolic authority to be able to receive that revelation. And and that comes as no surprise to the the Catholic Church, because uh, Cardinal James Gibbons, who became an American cardinal priest in 1886, Uh, wrote on this subject uh, with some persuasion uh, within the church Uh, he was the first uh, American Cardinal to actually participate in a papal conclave which he did in 1903 but he was a prolific writer and among his many writings he said it is not the prerogative of the Pope to receive revelations merely the interpreter of scriptures which have been given so you see the the Catholic Church would never take the position that the pope of the church was a receiver of new revelation such as John received on the island of Patmos and all of these things are an indication that John was the only one authorized to receive the revelation he was foreordained to do so but it's clear that no one else had the authority to receive it other than John because Uh, He was the only remaining apostle alive, and no one within the Catholic Church, including those who claimed succession of the apostolic keys from Peter, ever took the position that they held the authority uh, and the right uh, uh, as holders of these apostolic keys to receive the revelation. So that's just a little bit of background on the uh, conditions that existed at the time that John wrote the Revelation. Now it's important to note that by the time the Revelation came in 96 A.D., the seven churches were in differing states of apostasy, and uh, Orson Pratt made the comment that uh, these were the only seven churches still worthy of reproof or blessing. When Paul wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy one fifteen, this would have still been as early as the 60s, in sometime in the 60s. AD, and Paul writing in that verse said, All they which are in Asia be turned away from me. So here we have Paul, uh, the most successful uh, missionary to the Gentiles in the apostolic period, is saying, that as of the 60s A.D., probably mid-60s, he's writing that uh, things had changed and uh, everyone in Asia had turned away from him. So we're going to get into the details of the actual uh, uh, apostate conditions that uh, existed in these seven churches. At this point, I'll simply say that among the seven letters that John wrote, there were only two of them that he did not condemn for apostate practices within the church and that's Smyrna and Philadelphia. Likewise, there are two churches that he uh, did not praise, in other words, that he wholly condemned and that would have been Sardis and Laodicea. Among the other four, the other three churches, they were they got kind of a uh, mixed bag and mixed reviews on their uh, uh, spiritual condition within the church now that the letters themselves being seven in number represent a universal church these are conditions uh, that we find uh, reflective of universal conditions both in the ancient church but symbolic or representative of conditions that exist in the church today we do know that there were other churches be, besides just the seven so the New Testament itself references congregations that uh, were established in the cities of tros of Colossus, of hierapolis um, and uh, and others that are spoken of in the writings of the Christian fathers so John chose these seven uh, to be symbolic of the universal church the whole church but the reality of it is it's primarily written for our day because by the time John wrote these letters uh, the church was in a dire state of apostasy including these seven branches of the church And uh, it wasn't going to be long before they were going to be lost completely. John talks about this and prophesies about it in Revelation chapter 13. And so we know that they didn't long survive. John's writing of these uh, revelations and since they they didn't have much time to even digest them particularly because they all kind of had to wait their turns um, you have to understand that the the major reason for the writing of these letters is what we can glean for them from them today and the influence that they have it's kind of similar with some of the uh, a lot of the content in fact of the Book of Mormon where the the general population didn't have access to the uh, revelations and things that were received by prophets in their day and consider also the war chapters uh, in Alma chapter uh, 45 to about roughly 62 where one third of the book of Alma is devoted to just describing these horrendous battles that existed between the Lamanites and the Nephites and you sit and scratch your head and say why are these chapters even in the Book of Mormon? This is supposed to be a book that contains the uh, the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's all just one scene of bloodshed after another. And it's not like he was writing to these uh, combatant troops saying, you know, if you'll just clean up your act, uh, you won't have all these problems. And that that's the truth of it, but that message didn't really get out. And so uh, we today are the beneficiaries of what was written about the warfare that then existed because it's a foreshadow for things that will exist in our latter days and we're seeing it right now, frankly, uh, with the uh, latest uh, events and uh, wars brewing in uh, Israel and the Gaza Strip. And is this going to be a, a larger regional war? Is it uh, World War Three on the horizon? And so uh, these things all tend to help us, just as these seven letters to the churches, they didn't get much benefit from it, but we certainly can and do. Because what we exhibit today in the church, in terms of our our talents, our spiritual capacities, our weaknesses, These things are anti typical of what was going on in these seven churches, and and that's what we'll find as we dive into them in a little bit more detail. And so, uh, I just kind of want to leave it kind of open there because the goal here is to kind of get an overview of these churches and not to dive into any one of them specifically in this first part of this two part uh, podcast series on the seven churches. Now, If we turn now to the actual seven letters themselves it's important to understand that within each of the seven letters there was a certain structure and symmetry that existed for all seven and it just so happens that there were what we would call seven attributes or similarities that existed between the seven letters of course it has to be seven everything's seven all right so the first of the seven similarities is John's address to the person receiving the letter. He addressed each of them as the angel of such and such of church. Now angel uh, represents basically the servant of the church, the bishop, whoever was in charge at the time the letters were written. And so that's the first thing that is similar among all seven letters is the matter of his address. The second similarity is that Christ identifies himself by certain attributes that were previously identified in Revelation chapter 1. So in Revelation 1, we we have this vision of the Savior. He's described by certain attributes and those attributes are then taken and they are incorporated into Each of the seven letters. Now, we're going to get into those in more detail, and I'll give you an illustration of this when we talk about Ephesus specifically toward the end of this podcast. But that's the second uh, matter of symmetry between the letters. The third one uh, is a declaration of Christ's omniscience. So you'll find in each of the seven letters a statement where the Savior is saying, I know thy works. So this is his declaration, and you find it on all seven. The fourth similar attribute is either a praise or censure by the Savior to whichever church it was. As I mentioned, two of them were praised only, two of them were censured only, and the others were a mixed bag. But they all have this attribute that is common in all seven letters. The fifth common attribute is a promise of Christ's coming, which is a reference both to his coming to them as individual members of the church um, in their various conditions, and also to his second coming, which is particularly relevant and important to those of us who live now in the latter days. The sixth attribute was a command for the members in these churches to hear or hearken to the words that were written by John in the book of Revelation. And finally, the seventh attribute is the promise made to overcomers to receive eternal life. If you overcome, then you get the blessings of eternal life. Now, the only other little oddity, if you will, about this particular ordering of these seven attributes is that in the first three uh, letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, the the, the order that I just gave you is what you will see in those particular cities. The other four churches, however, have the order of uh, attribute number six and attribute number seven reversed thus for Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, instead of the sixth attribute which is a command to hear and hearken that becomes the seventh attribute and the seventh becomes the sixth which is the promise to the overcomers. Now This happens a lot, actually, in the book of Revelation, where you have a situation where you have four of the churches uh, have certain characteristics and qualities, and three of them go the other way. And it's the same with things like the plagues that we'll come up with uh, later on in this discussion. So I I haven't spent a great deal of time to try and figure out why John um, reversed the last the order of the last four churches from the the first three churches but it seems to be something that again is not coincidental it's not haphazard the lord has his way of ordering things and so the fact that there was three and there was then four in terms of the ordering uh, probably has some significance but i candidly i i don't know what it is to be quite honest with you now each letter was also tailored to specific spiritual conditions and physical features that existed within each church. And I'm going to go through that in a little bit more detail and illustrate that with Ephesus when we get to a specific discussion. The bottom line is John was familiar with the seven cities. The Savior was obviously familiar with the seven cities. And used the geography, the political situation, the their commercial activities, all to illustrate spiritual truths from their specific locality. And uh, that's something we'll get into. But that's common in all seven of the letters. And uh, I mentioned a moment ago that the manner of address was uh, common to all of them in each letter. The, the, the head of the church was referred to as an angel. The Joseph Smith translation actually changes the word angel to the word servant in all cases. And so uh, essentially we, th- we know from that change that really we're referring to the head of the church which would be the bishop or presiding authority at that time each letter warns the uh the members of the church against the dangers of personal apostasy, these promises of exaltation. Each letter was a promise and conveyed an overriding message of hope for people. And as it relates to these promises of exaltation, it's kind of interesting that in the seven letters, the information tended to be somewhat cumulative. So it's not like they were promised exaltation in seven different ways, but all of them tend to build on each other until you get down to the very last one uh, where the promise was made to the Laodicean saints that if you would overcome your weaknesses, you'll have the promise of sitting on thrones and the blessing of godhood, which is the ultimate blessing that we can think about when we think about exaltation, which is eternal life. But those terms, the implication is and the doctrinal truth is that that pertains to godhood, that there is a continuation of seed. Lorenzo Snow kind of came up with the couplet, as man now is, God once was, and as God now is, man may become. And uh, that's the ultimate promise made to the Laodicean saints, which were probably among the seven, the worst of the worst. They were the ones that were struggling the most. And so you can see that even those who were in the worst of conditions in this, uh, quote, universal church had the promise of achieving godhood as they overcome their weaknesses and have faith in jesus christ and that's a message of hope it should be a message of hope to all of us and to those who struggle whatever the struggles may be the promise is there is that you can be like god himself if you will simply overcome the weaknesses of the flesh that afflict us. And so that's a kind of an overview of the uh, seven letters and the seven churches. And I want to now turn our attention to a specific discussion of the city of Ephesus, which today is known as Selkuk in the uh, nation of Turkey. The Greek name was Ephesus, which means desirable. So Ephesus was a desirable city. At the time of of, uh, John's writing, it was the capital city of Ionia, uh, which was a province in the Roman Empire located south of what is known today as Izmir in, uh, in modern Turkey. Um, Ephesus was also known by the title of the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was located near the mouth of the river Castor, which today is known as the river Kukuk Menderes, uh and flowed into the Aegean Sea. It was a beautiful and influential city. Um, most people, if you ask, take the opinion that there were probably about 250,000 people that lived at Ephesus at that time, although some say there could have been as many as a half a million people. It had a nice library, it had a theater uh, that was an open air amphitheater that could seat 50,000 people, so that's a lot of bodies. Um, and uh, so it's kind of similar to the Colosseum in Rome itself. Uh, And they had gladiatorial activities going on in this theater, uh, the same as they did in uh, Rome. The city also had paved streets with uh, the uh, main road being uh, adorned with columns on either side of the street. It had a wall uh, six miles in circumference that was built back in 287 BC. So uh, this city had been around for a long time. And uh, by way of tradition, it is believed that John lived at Ephesus. And from here, he was banished to the island of Patmos. Most people tend to think that he moved there sometime prior to uh, 70 AD and that after his banishment on the island of Patmos, he returned there again. Owing to this tradition that John lived in Ephesus, Ephesus, the Emperor Justinian uh, in Rome uh, built a church to John's honor in the 6th century and it was a magnificent structure um, that was built to, to his memory and then uh, there's also a general belief and tradition that Mary the mother of Jesus lived with John at Ephesus and that uh, she was die- she died and was buried in that city as well now Ephesus was also the seat of government for the region of Ionia and so this would have been the residence of the proconsul uh for the uh, the Roman Empire <clears throat> proconsul essentially would be similar to a governor in the states of the United States. And so uh, as far as executives go, uh, he's one step below what would be the president of the United States, who's the chief executive of the country. And the chief uh, executive in the Roman Empire above the proconsul would be the consul. And so uh, a proconsul was a a pretty high-ranking Roman authority, and uh, the seat or residence for that person would have been at Ephesus at the time of John's writing. It was also a religious center, um, and especially for the practice of mystical arts, the uh the occult, things like this. Um, it was also the home to the Temple of Diana, Diana in Greek terminology would have been known as Artemis, but the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It took uh, over 220 years to construct this temple, and that occurred between the years 580 B.C. and about 356 A.D. It was two football fields in size and so it was a very very large structure and what's interesting about it is also the engineering was uh, pretty spectacular as well it uh, was uh, built in an area where earthquakes were known to happen and so when they built the temple they built it on an artificial foundation that was made of animal skins and charcoal over the top of marshes so if there was an earthquake it would have tend to have some fluidity about it and it would move a little bit rather than just collapsing they're doing the same thing with the uh, modernization of the uh, temple in salt lake putting it on uh, uh, the type of uh, structures that allow it to slide during an earthquake so i do think they're probably using something other than animal skins and charcoal in the salt lake temple but <laughs> but the, the concept is the same and uh, the other thing that's kind of noteworthy about the uh, temple of uh, diana was there it had an an a wooden or ebony image of diana's likeness that was located in the temple and according to tradition the image just fell out of heaven, and so one day this this big statue of Diana appears in her likeness, and everybody's just saying, "Well, it just fell out of heaven." Uh, but uh, that's how that came to be, and so yeah, I you know you have to scratch your head a little bit on that one, wondering, "Well, what what do we really know?" The the worker bees that were working there the night before. <laughs> so anyway, that's the tradition. the The temple also had. 120 marble pillars or columns that supported much of the temple and each of them was about 56 feet high so it was really a a pretty magnificent structure and also with this structure behind the uh, image of Diana there was this big vault or a treasury that stored the riches of some of the wealthiest Asians in Asia Minor and so you had uh, you could go to the bank and go to the temple in in one visit and uh, and so that was also part of the temple structure now Diana herself was known as the mother goddess of Earth, and if you go back, she she kind of evolved from other goddesses before her. And if you go back all the way to the time of the Babylonian Empire, um, she would have been associated with the uh, goddess Venus, uh, or the goddess of love. Among the Phoenicians, who were a, a Canaanite uh, descendants, uh, the name would have been Astarte or Ashtoreth. And so uh, as the goddess of love, as the goddess of fertility, uh, the images of Diana or the statues that were made to represent her person, you would see these rows of breasts on uh, the statue uh, to represent her fertility. And on her head was a headdress representing the uh, fortified city wall. And so, uh, given the background of uh, who Diana was, it's not surprising to learn that the Temple of Diana was also devoted to ritual prostitution. And so, uh, that was just uh, kind of uh, the fair that existed in this temple, and and frankly, in many others. Uh, Herodotus was a Greek historian. Uh, who lived from about 484 BC until 425 BC. And according to his history, when he wrote about the custom of the Babylonians, it was to require every female To attend the temple of Venus once in her life and to prostitute herself in honor of the goddess and so that kind of mentality that kind of uh, um, immodesty and immorality uh, survived all the way up until the time of Diana in the Roman Empire and into the time when John was writing his letter to the seven churches and so that's the way conditions were in the city of Ephesus and the practices in the temple of Diana now the temple itself was also an asylum for criminals and so the way that they determine the area in which criminals could enter and once in that place they would have asylum was uh, someone shot an arrow and however far the arrow went that then became the circumference that criminals had to get themselves within the shot of the arrow and if they did they would get asylum and now sometimes over the course of the years the the lines were moved out a little bit to be a little bit more lenient and uh, when they figured out that <laughs> too many criminals are taking advantage of the asylum they, they started to move the boundaries back in a little bit but uh, that that's another part of our aspect of the Temple of Diana was if you're a criminal if you're a bad guy go to the temple and you'll you'll be spared it's not unlike the tradition of course uh, among the Jews that uh, if a criminal at least someone who was not guilty of a criminal offense went and grabbed the horns of the brazen altar in the temple or the tabernacle among the Jews, he would get the benefit of asylum as well. Um, And so the the practices are are not horribly different in that regard. Unfortunately, it was in about 262 AD that the uh, Temple of Diana was largely destroyed by the Goths who were a Germanic people that came in and and destroyed much of the area. So that's a little bit about the the city, about the temple. Let me talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, uh, religious aspects of the uh, city of Ephesus at this point. Um, We have an interesting story in the 19th chapter in the book of Acts about the sons of Sceva. And i i just want to read this because it illustrates uh what was going on historically um among the uh the people at ephesus as far as the practice of religion and the success of the the gospel of jesus christ among these people and in this these verses from 13 through 20 we have an account of the sons of Sceva, who were basically an apostate Jewish sect. They were sons of the Jewish high priest that lived in the uh, the city of Ephesus, and they practiced exorcism in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to just kind of read the account, and I'll, I'll make a couple of uh, comments as I go along. And it says, starting out in verse 13, it says, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches and there were seven sons of one skeva a jew and a chief of the priest which did so so here they are trying to exercise evil spirits out of uh, some man who is possessed here in the city of ephesus and uh, in verse 15 it says and the evil spirit answered and said jesus i know and paul i know but who are ye (laughs) and so i I just find it interesting that the spirit is chit-chatting with these sons of Skeven and telling who are you And it says, the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So there you have it. All of a sudden, our uh, G-rated podcast has turned into a (laughs) PG-13 because of the sons of Sceva. And so uh, they they run out. And what happens after that is kind of interesting because, you know, that kind of an event is something people tend to talk about. Even if you're on a common, common telephone line, it's the talk of the town. And so after this, it says, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Again, by the fact that you know, of what happened with the sons of Sceva. It says, many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Now this is what's kind of interesting about what happens. It says, many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And all this is happening at Ephesus. And so you stop and think about this story, and and keep in mind it tells us that the price or the value of all these astrological books and books of the occult and magic spells books and all of these kinds of things, they take them and they burn them and the value of what was burned was 50,000 silver coins, which a silver coin at that time was essentially equivalent to the wage for one common laborer for one day. So if you add all that up, what it equates to is a worker would have had to have worked 137 years continuously to earn the value of the books that were burned after this event with the sons of Sceva and uh, what happens is because uh, the temple of Diana was located at Ephesus there were a lot of people that would come to the city as pilgrims to worship there in this city and so when they would come what they found was that this event had happened with the sons of Sceva, and many of the people had started to convert to uh, Christianity and to have a belief and faith in Jesus Christ. So you come as a pilgrim to worship at the Temple of Diana, you hear what's going on, you become converted, and when you go back out to your hometown, what you take with you from Ephesus are the truths of the gospel, and so even though Paul didn't travel to all of the localities uh, from Ephesus, Ephesus became a, a center of the church and the means by which the Gospel was spread to many other parts in Asia Minor because of these pilgrimages that people were making. And, in fact, Paul had such great success. He was there for only about three years. He was there during his first missionary travel, and then during his second journey he was there and stayed there for over two years. So, all total, Paul was probably in Ephesus for about three years, but his success became so well uh, and renown that uh, essentially people stopped buying all of the little statues of Diana and uh, the silversmiths that were producing the statues began to have uh, heartburn with this as <laughs> you started to have riots in the city of Ephesus because Christianity was being spread and it impacted the uh, commercial activities in the city. So speaking of that topic, the, uh, namely the uh, topic of uh, commercial activities, it's important to recognize that uh, Ephesus was also an important commercial center. So it's, a, it's the seat of government. It is a seat of religious activity, and it's also this important commercial center primarily because it existed on the junction of various roads going north and south on the coast and also going uh, east inland from the coast uh, to other major trade routes. So this was probably, of all the cities in Asia Minor, Ephesus was probably the most accessible city by land and by sea. That commercial enterprise ultimately started to fail uh, no later than around the 8th century AD when the harbor started to fill in with uh, silt that was brought down by the, uh, by the river. And this then led to a commercial decline. Uh, there was so much silt flowing down the, the river that the ancient port Uh, that once was next to the city itself started to be pushed further and further out to sea. And so uh, where Ephesus was once on the, the coastline and uh, right next to the harbor the city's now about 3 to 5 miles inland and between ephesus and the actual ocean you ha- you basically have these 3 to 5 miles of swampy ground that's been filled in with all the silt coming down uh, the river and so that led ultimately to its uh, decline as a commercial center and the city ultimately was burned and the temple destroyed in about uh, 262 A.D. Uh, by the Goths, as I mentioned previously. And by the 10th century A.D., the city was virtually deserted and uh, didn't have much activity at all. And uh, that was something that of course was predicted by John that you need to either change your ways or really bad things are going to begin to happen and ultimately they they did not change their ways they left their first love and as a result of that uh, Ephesus uh, fell away and uh, ceased to be a going concern if you will now I want to talk specifically for a moment about the letter to the Ephesians and I talked about the overall structure of these letters and how John would take the attributes of the Savior identified in in Revelation chapter 1 and then use them or incorporate them into each of the seven letters and so now I'm going to give you the illustration of how that occurs and just recognize it's the same in all seven letters and in each of the seven letters a different attribute is chosen. Now in this particular letter we get our attributes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And so this is John having his vision of the Savior when he first hears the voice of the Savior, and he turns around to see who it is that is talking to them. So that's where we pick up the account in verse 12. And John says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Okay, so those are the attributes identified in Revelation chapter 1. Then if we go to John's letter in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we read the following unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And of course, I already mentioned that in the Joseph Smith translation, the, uh, the word angel would have been changed to the word servant. So this is to the servant or bishop of the church of Ephesus, write this. So this is John's instruction. This is what you're supposed to write. He says, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of... Of the seven golden candlesticks so right now you should be having a little deja vu because you'll remember from chapter 1 there is the mention of the seven golden candlesticks and there is the mention that the Savior who is like unto the Son of Man is in the midst of the seven candlesticks same attributes that they, they and it's not coincidental it happens in all seven letters and so what we have here is a description of the savior holding the seven stars in his right hand which is symbolic of his power to spiritually preserve the seven leaders of the churches and by extension the members in the congregation and by further extension of the universal use of the number seven that applies in connection with all seven churches, you essentially have this symbol of Christ's power to hold all of us as members of his church and kingdom in his right hand. All right. And so the the second attribute that comes into play is Christ walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks. In other words, these seven golden candlesticks also represent each of us because each of us, as we are worthy to do so, then we hold up and support the light that comes from Christ. And so this is the the attribute that reflects on us, again, as part of the uh, the universal church. Now, I'm going to give you a further analysis of why John chose to use these particular attributes in connection with the Church of Ephesus. Uh, There is a particular reason that he did so, which it's only after you kind of look at all seven churches and and their makeup, what they were like as commercial centers, what they were like geographically speaking, what they were like in terms of their religious practices and affiliations that you come to appreciate the use of these attributes. But in a moment, it's going to become clear why John chose these particular attributes to talk about in connection with the city at Ephesus but before I get there I want to say another thing it's a little bit of a story of something that just happened today <laughs> it's not an old story but it's what I wanted to talk about in conclusion as I tell you about these particular attributes and their connection to the city of Ephesus uh, that is the <clears throat> in particular the holding of the seven stars in his right hand. Because as I thought about that attribute, it reminded me of a song that was written by Janice Cap Perry called In the Hollow of Thy Hand. And you may have heard it if you've ever been to one or more missionary farewells. A lot of times people will choose to write or to have someone sing this song in the sacrament meeting as a missionary is getting ready to go out because the message behind it is as the the young boy grows up and becomes a man and is being sent out into the mission field it's kind of a a prayer or supplication that the Lord would hold that young man or that young woman in the hollow of his hand And uh, so as I thought about that, I decided, you know, I think it'd be a really great thing if I concluded my podcast by having that song play in the background of my podcast as I was talking about this notion from uh, the book of Revelation of how the Savior holds the seven stars or each of us in his right hand and I, I hope that you can kind of see the connection. So when I was thinking about that today, <laughs> so here's here's where the story comes in. So I called the the guy that helps me out with doing my technical stuff, his name is Elias and uh, he works with uh, Melody Rose Media. And I called him, hey, you know, Elias, uh, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, can we make sure we can dub in the uh, the music from uh, Sister Perry, uh, In the Hollow of Thy Hand? And uh, if so, what do you know about licensing and uh, getting the permissions that might be necessary to include that song on a podcast? And as I told him this story, Uh, He said, well, he talked about the technical stuff and we dealt with that. And then he said, as far as the licensing, you know, if you have any issues, just let me call my mom because he has Janice on speed dial. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a small world, but you know, apparently she knows everybody, but uh, uh, Elias' mom got Janice on speed dial, and so I said, well, let me see if I can go to the website or something. So I did a little bit of searching around and uh, tried to find the website for Sister Perry. And uh, I ultimately found it and it's got a button you can push on to get information about licensing, which was not helpful for what I was trying to get. But on the website, I noticed that there was a telephone number. I said, "Okay, I'll just call them up. But when I was looking at the number, one of the digits, I couldn't make out for sure whether it was a six or an eight. And so, I well, I'm just going to have to dial it, could be the wrong number. Um, And and so I went ahead and dialed it, and uh, this female voice answers the phone and just says hello and I thought oh great apparently I've got the right number but I said oh hi I'm trying to reach prime recordings Inc it's a it's a business that's owned by Janice Cap Perry and I was trying to see if I could reach her but I might have the wrong number and she says no that's me And so I got her on the phone, and I'm sitting there talking to her, and uh, she said, you know, I don't usually pick up the phone, but uh, my son does, and he's in Spain for three weeks, and so uh, I'm just picking up the phone today, and I said, well, great, Uh, I explained to her my podcast and my desire to... uh, use her song in the hollow of thy hand as kind of a concluding song that would go along with my podcast and uh, I wanted to know if uh, there was any kind of a licensing fee and uh, whether uh, there was something I needed to do to get permission to uh, to do that and she said oh my son handles that sort of stuff and but since he's gone I say yes. <laughs> so. I'm sitting there talking to her, and she's, she just gives me the permission, and uh, and I told her, I said, well, I, I love your song, and uh, I love it when people sing it at missionary farewells, and uh, they sing the song, and the next thing I know, she's telling me, oh, you know, I just wrote a song that they're going to be singing at my funeral, <laughs> <laughs> and i'm just sitting there kind of cracking up i mean i i've never talked to this woman in my life and it's like we're these old friends and she says i'm 85 years old and i'm ready to go <laughs> and so uh she's just uh my my feelings and uh, my experience with her was that she's just this wonderfully gracious and friendly person and it was like uh we had known each other forever and uh, she's just uh, being very open and candid and friendly with me and uh, you know you have those occasions in your life when you have seemingly these instant connections to people that you've never met before it's like your soulmates right and uh, you know usually you say well we must have known each other in the uh, pre-mortal spirit world and I usually add when I when I find somebody like this I said uh, that uh, yeah we probably even had the same spirit mother and uh, so that's kind of the way I felt as I was uh, talking to uh, sister Perry and uh, I hastened to add that after I'd had this several minutes of just kind of this nice uh, chatting back and forth with her and spending some nice moments together I said uh, would you mind if on my podcast in addition to uh, playing your song if I told people about my conversation with you (laughs) And she said, oh, no problem. And so I've, uh, I'm sharing her song, and I'm sharing our conversation with uh, her permission. And uh, it was just a uh, really great uh, opportunity that I had with her, and I enjoyed it very much. And so um, what, what I'd like to do now is uh, essentially play the, uh, the song, um, In the Hollow of Thy Hand, that uh, she wrote. And uh, the uh, song of this melody uh, comes from the, uh, this verse in Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 that talks about the angel of the church of Ephesus and saying, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. What's important to understand about this is the fact that Ephesus was the city of the proconsul. It was the seat of government. But in reality, in our spiritual lives, it is Jesus Christ who held the saints in his hand, and uh, it is he who is our protector, and so he's the real governor. Uh, And he's in the midst of the people. And so these seven candlesticks that resemble and represent the, uh, the faithful saints who hold up the light of Jesus Christ as candlesticks, he is in our midst and we are in the hollow of his hand. You don't need to go to a place like Ephesus um, where you have a proconsul to have the kind of protection you need in your spiritual lives. And by the same token, Ephesus as the city of Diana was a place of pilgrimage for many people in Asia Minor. And in the same sense, we make our pilgrimage as we come unto Christ. And as we do so, let us be converted. And if we do so, then we will be his candlestick. And he will be someone that holds us in the hollow of his hands. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing today in our lives? Because this is a message not to the church in Ephesus alone. This is a church, this is a message to the universal church, a message to you and I in the, uh, in the church today. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing Uh, how are we doing in the sense that uh, we're coming unto Christ, we're making our pilgrimage, we're giving up material things and things of great worldly value, but have sometimes very little spiritual value. And are we giving those things up so that he will stand in our midst and so that we can then be in the hollow of his hand? Uh, Is he our proconsul? Is he our protector? And are we... Uh, existing in a spiritual condition where he is in our midst. And it's my hope and my prayer that as you consider the message of Ephesus and uh, the meaning of these symbols connected to Ephesus, that uh, we can enjoy the blessings of having him in our midst and having him hold us in the hollow of his hand. I'll see you next week.